Celebrations Podcast, Part 43, Uther Charlton Stevens, recorded on the 9th of November 2022. Hi, I'm Gary Brightman, and this is my periodic podcast called Vibrations. Established in 2018, Vibe is a book and music shop situated in Moiwo, on Lantau Island, in Hong Kong. Firstly, some bad news. Good friend and Vibe Shop volunteer of three years, Wolfgang Reiser passed away recently. Our deep condolences go out to his family, wife Elsa and two sons Ludwig and Sebastian. We will always remember you, Wolfie. Since our last podcast, we've had two further events at the shop. Mary Jane and Graham ex-long-term Moi Wo residents came back to play in a very cool acoustic guitar session. We look forward to them playing another Tiny Desk gig at Vibe any time they like. Last weekend, ex-Gurka turned KC, Neville Cerrone came to entertain us. He was plugging his series of three books about the adventures of Max Devlin. His latest book and audio book is called The Chakrata Incident. And all three books are available at Vibe, along with his memoir, Council in the Clouds. Neville has long-term been plying his jazz singing and piano at Ned Kelly's Last Stand in Ashley Road in TST. And so it would have been rude of him not to play and sing for us too. Asya Sibel, a.k.a. Dark Moods, and previous Vibe volunteer, has decorated Vibe with her fabulous artwork. First, a spray-painted mural on the shop's shutters. And secondly, murals of Joe Strummer, Aretha Franklin, and Jimi Hendrix on the interior wall. We wish Asia good luck for the next chapter of her life back in Poland. Finally, we've taken on two new volunteers. Welcome Elaine and Carrie. Many thanks for joining the working ranks of Vibe. You can see all our Tiny Desk gigs and book talks on our Facebook channel, Vibe Silvermine Bay, or on our YouTube channel, Live at Vibe HK. Subscribe soon to avoid missing the action. And so to this week's interview. Uther Charlton Stevens is an author, historian and fellow of the Royal Asiatic Society. Uther spent his childhood in Hong Kong, where he attended ESF schools, specifically Peak School and Island School. After this, Uther earned his bachelor's and doctoral degrees in history from the University of Oxford, and his master's degree in between from the London School of Economics. His first book, Anglo-Indians and Minority Politics in South Asia, was published by Routledge for the Royal Asiatic Society book series in 2018 and released on paperback in 2020. His latest book, Anglo-India and the End of Empire, was published in London in September of this year by Hearst and will soon be published in North America by Oxford University Press, USA. The South Asian rights have been sold to HarperCollins India. Uther's research and writing draws inspiration from his own mixed-race family, including the stories he heard during childhood summer holidays from his Anglo-Indian grandmother of her service as an officer in the Women's Auxiliary Corps, India, during
during the Second World War. Her life and upbringing in colonial South India and her trip to Kandahar in Afghanistan. Uther's Anglo-Indian father was born in an army station in Ferozapur and spent his childhood in Bangalore before migrating to the UK with his two elder siblings and widowed mother. Welcome to Vibutha. Thanks for having me. It's wonderful to be here. As we do, we'll start off with 10 warm-up questions. What's your favourite book or author? When I was growing up, I was absolutely obsessed with Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. So I, I can quote from it extensively to, to this day. So I read and reread it. When people ask me, what's your favourite book or your favourite film? I think, you know, rather than say, what do I think is the most exquisite, perfect embodiment of cinema or literature, I, I think, well, what is the thing that I like to read and reread or watch and rewatch the yes. most? You know, so yes. it's not like what is the, the best form of art in this genre. It's, it's what is the thing that you come back to time and time again and you yeah. enjoy it as much as many times as you read yes. it or watch it. Um, and then more recently, I think that Herman Woke, Winds of War and War in Remembrance, which is really um, one book split in two, that, that would ha that's replaced Lord of the Rings more recently as my rereading book. In nonfiction, Robert Caro's The Years of Lyndon Johnson, multi-volume biography. We're still waiting for the last volume. That's something that I reread a lot. Okay. Favourite musical artists in that case? <laughs> well, you know, recently, in recent years, I think it's become Lana Del Rey. I, I'd just like to chill out and listen to her. And when, when I'm working or writing, I often listen to Indian sitar music, and I like Anushka Shankar. Okay. And uh, the last album that I really got into as an album was way back... Um, Keen Hopes and Fears, okay. which I yeah, thought yeah. was a really good album all around. But yes. what I've found is that with Spotify, my tastes have changed that I've yeah. expanded into many, many genres, which I wouldn't have listened to before. Yes. But I've lost the feel of a particular artist or a particular um, album. Yes. So I create these playlists in many different genres uh, you know so I even have like a synthwave playlist and yeah. I have like Gregorian monastic chanting music you know yeah. all kinds of mm. different music and I create a sort of playlist of the songs that give me goosebumps yeah you know and yes. th that I can sort of have have a sip of whiskey and just float into the clouds yeah. listening to this stuff that generates emotional feeling I really do like jazz music and early jazz from the 1920s okay. and 30s and I listened yep. to a lot of um, music like big band music from the 1940s and I like to as well as Indian classical music I like to listen to that to get into the historical mindset when I'm mm. reading and writing about history yes to sort of time warp myself to a degree yeah. so I try and immerse myself in the films of the period that I'm yes. writing about and also that the music and, yeah. and I listen to old-time radio programs that I can find online okay. from, from that era, including you yeah. know, old news broadcasts. During the lockdown, though, from the jazz mood, I've sort of shifted into a kind of blues phase to yeah. appreciate blues. And I think that as I get a bit 
older, I feel like it's a sort of maturation of taste that the yeah. the slow pace of blues music that you can just really yes. vibe to. Yes, yeah, yes, <laughs> um, yeah. That yeah. is something that I really have come to love. Favorite film or films? The Last Emperor is my favorite yes. film. Yeah, by by, yeah. by a long way. Um, but Mississippi mm. Burning. Okay. Is also yeah. a big yeah. favorite of mine. Okay. And when it comes to the classics, um, some like it hot. Uh, yeah. I can watch that and rewatch yeah. it, and I think ev nice... everyone who encounters that film loves it. And of course, I I really, as you can tell from the first two choices, I really love historical. Uh, yeah. films yeah. and uh, Elizabeth and then Elizabeth Golden yes. Age with Kate Blanchett those are really amazing films yeah. as well preferred drink I'm a big tea drinker and yeah. I like increasingly I like some smoky teas like Lapsang Suchi yeah. and uh, I've always liked green tea and a lot of Chinese green teas I love fresh juice of all kinds you know I, I know that grapefruit juice is particularly healthy but I love fresh apple juice and on the alcohol front I like Isla whiskies old fashions and I always like a, a mulled wine especially if it's sweet okay do you have some sort of life motto I have two very curious cats you know curiosity killed the cat and one of them is always, whose name is Amadeus, is always investigating everything. And I came up with a motto for him, which was, everything will be interesting. <laughs> and I, I think that could be a motto for me as well. Yes, yeah. I think it's a good one because it means you've got an open mind to explore and don't set boundaries. Exactly. Yeah, yeah like it. Um, do you have a favourite Hong Kong walk? So I spend a lot of my time out in our place in the Saikong Country Park and I love walking up from Pak Tam Ao where you've got this amazing yep. panoramic view in all directions. Yes. And I love all the walks around there between Pak Tam Ao and up to the Marine Reserve at Hoi Ha. Okay. And I tend to hike up Pak Tam Ao but I tend to go on runs out to uh, the Marine Reserve at Hoi Ha and then go for a swim in the sea there because it's really clean yeah nostalgically i also love going around the peak various yeah. areas because i i went to peak school and that reminds me of of childhood yeah yeah luard road it's a, it's a lovely feel-good walk isn't it and it's nice and, and shaded and ne next to the you know yeah. what was the peak cafe peak cafe yeah, yeah. i think it still is actually mm. i was i was up there on the new peak tram when queen elizabeth passed I was pleased to see it was still there. And it hasn't changed that much, actually. Yeah, I've been meaning to go on the new Peak Tram because I know they've, they've switched the colour back to green, which was yeah. the colour from my very early childhood that I don't remember, apparently. As, yes. as far as I remember, yes. it was always this maroon red. Yeah, yeah. And I used to actually get the Peak Tram up to school because I lived on McDonnell Road okay. and I was at Peak School. Okay, yeah. And... Uh, if I was to get the school bus, I would feel sick on the windy roads. So yeah. I ended up getting the, you could get a, a, a season pass and I would get yeah. the peak tram every day. And I would complain to my mother because at the top of the peak tram, I still had to walk up a small hill to get to the school. <laughs> and she would said, what are you complaining about? You have one of the <laughs> most wonderful journeys to school She's in right. the world. And of course she was completely right. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. You don't realize I that at the time. <laughs> yeah, I bet, I bet, yeah. 
it was really a colonial school, yeah. you know, when, yeah. when I was yeah. there. And, and I'm sure it's, it's changed with the times, but it's still in a lovely yes. spot, slightly detached from the rest of Those Hong are, Kong. Yeah, and the rest of the world to a certain extent. Yes, up, up in yeah. basically what is Hong Kong's hill station. Yeah. What were the ages uh, that you were at school there? So all, all the way through peak All the way school, through. And yeah. then I went, and I stayed all the way, all the way through in the ESF. Um, went to island school okay. um, up to A-level, and it was still A-level yeah. in those days. And yes. my youngest sister, when she was there, they had switched over to international baccalaureate. You mentioned your youngest sister there, two, two siblings? So all my three younger siblings... Your three siblings. In the primary division, they all went to Chinese international school. Um, where, okay. And they were all in the Chinese language stream, I believe. Oh, okay. um, so we all speak Mandarin. But I was rejected at interview at age five or whatever it was for, for Chinese International, which is why I went through the ESF, I suppose. So bloody harsh, isn't it, really, at that mm. age group? You, so do, do, do you or your siblings speak Cantonese or just Mandarin? Or We're very Mandarin-speaking because of the yeah. foresight and decisions of my mother. Of course, I would love to have better Cantonese than I do as well, but I yeah. have you know, basic Cantonese for yeah. interacting you know, in public transport, in restaurants. Um, do you have a favourite Hong Kong restaurant? Recently, I went to Chat, uh, yeah. Indian restaurant in the Rosewood Hotel, which was oh, yes. absolutely delicious, yeah. out of this world. And of course, I've had a lot of Indian food in yes. India and in London yeah. at the high end, and that really stood out. Okay. Whenever I've been away from Hong Kong for a while, and I come back here, the things I crave that I want to get my fix is yeah. Sichuan food with the the ma la thing okay. and mapo dofu also Korean barbecue all those places right. clustered around Times yeah. Square and Causeway Bay yeah finish this sentence um, I live in Hong Kong because so I moved back to Hong Kong last December and I love being here Mm. I grew up here, so it will always yeah. be my home. Yeah, I don't know what the future holds. Yeah. A lot of us who've grown up in Hong Kong end up all yeah. over the world and, and end up living in different cities. And I think that Hong yeah. Kong prepares you very well for, for not yes. settling in one place, yeah. for, for being flexible, for being culturally open. So I, I'm open to wh wherever life may take me, but I'll always take yeah. Hong Kong with me. Chatting with a group of friends and it was about three Hong Kongers, um, local Cantonese Hong Kongers and one English guy. And somebody in the group said, but we Chinese, this, that and the other. And the, my English friend looked at him to say, but you're, you're talking about Uther as well. And my Chinese friend said, oh, Uther's basically Chinese. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, which I Praise take as indeed. a huge compliment. I would, absolutely, yeah, yeah. What a lovely thing to say, actually, yeah, yeah. And interesting yeah. because, you know, identity is is built up in so many layers. And yeah. as we'll get into, yeah. I also have the, the huge Indian uh, yes. background, uh, the Indian yeah. roots, too. Your early life in Hong Kong, um, you moved here when you were sort of two years old. Yeah. Um, you went through the school system, as, as we say. Sounds like you had a, a idyllic childhood, I guess. 
um, here at, at, the, at, at the peak schools and then the ESF schools. You then went to um, the UK to study, um, to university, to Oxford. Yes, yeah, to Mansfield College, which is a very small college. Yeah. I read modern history, uh, but at Oxford, modern history begins with the collapse of the Roman Empire. So it includes the medieval period, uh, which is amusing to, to normal people. So I guess my interest in history does go yeah. back into early childhood. Yeah. That, as we'll probably get into, the stories my grandmother used to tell me in summer holidays, Yeah. I'd stay up late into the night talking with her. Um, she slept in a chair in her living room and I'd often um, sleep on, on the sofa to keep chatting with her into the night rather than nice. going, to, going to sleep in the bed. And she would tell me stories about her life in India, um, which she had left and she, she never went back. I think she didn't want to uh, be confronted with the change that had happened since, yeah. since the 1950s in, in Bangalore because Bangalore's totally yeah. changed from the garden city of India, from the pensioner's paradise into India's Silicon Valley, into its yeah. IT tech hub. Yeah. I had some really great history teachers at Island School, uh, one of whom sadly passed away, Jenny Ferns. And I'm, I was quite sad that she, mm. she wasn't here to, to see the launch of my new book because yeah. I think she was, she was expecting it and she was very supportive. Right. And she was an amazing, inspirational history teacher. The headmaster of my secondary school, Island School, David James, who's, who's moved back to the UK, he also taught me history when I was in year nine, and he taught us the American Civil War, and I've been fascinated by that topic ever since, so okay. I think he also played a big role in my yes. formal academic appreciation of history. And then, of course, your family. Your father was born in India, I, yes. I understand. Yes, he was born in Ferozepur in an army base, which was far away from their, that's in the Punjab, it was far away from their hometown in South India and Bangalore. So he grew up in Bangalore until yeah. my grandmother, who was widowed, brought him and his two elder siblings to the UK. The processing of your heritage kind of came into things at some stage. It did, but you know, it, initially I gravitated towards American history at university. Okay. I was very interested Civil in War. the American Civil War, the, the Amer American racial history in the 19th century, and I did research on the Cherokee removal, which is a very, yeah. very tragic story. Yeah. And the interesting thing is that has quite amazing parallels with the Anglo-Indian story, because yeah. the, the leader of the Cherokee nation, John Ross, was mixed race. He was half Scottish. And the Cherokee were a tribe of people who had assimilated themselves in the mm. direction of uh, American civilization, uh, American culture. They yes. were modeling yeah. their constitution, their newspaper, um, their nation yeah. on the United States with, with the encouragement of the policy of President Jefferson that Native American people should anglicize themselves towards American yep. culture. And then having 
made all of these collective efforts to assimilate themselves in that direction, they were betrayed by the American government, by President yeah. Andrew Jackson, when gold was found on the territory of the Cherokee Nation. Right, yes. Their land was expropriated by the state of Georgia. They were forced to flee overland to, right. on the so-called Trail of Tears, where yeah. many of them died in, in the snow, to relocate to the West, mm. you know, which is a form of, of ethnic cleansing. Um, yeah. it's, it's a terrible story, and it's a story of betrayal of a people who had become culturally hybridized and who were westernized in the sense of adopting American culture to some degree. And it has the mixed race element. Yeah. And they also had a very complicated position because the Cherokee nation started to emulate white Southern planter society by having African-American black slaves. Yeah. So you had, uh, there's a book called Red on Black. So you had Cherokees right. who were anglicizing themselves, who then had their own slaves. Yes. Um, so th yeah. that's an uncomfortable story. Yes. Uh, but it's yeah. a story of a group that is in the middle of, of the very binary way that, that race was constructed in America, which yeah. tended to be white versus black, and, yeah. and the, the Native American community, which was yes. you know, somewhat in the middle of that, were written out of the story. Yeah. They, they were seen to be vanishing. That has comparison points that fed into discovering my own family history yes, yes. in the Anglo-Indian community. Also a group yeah. that had this complicated position in between the British in India and the yeah. other Indian communities. Right. Um, as people of, of mixed descent or mixed race who had a quite a westernized orientation and pro-British orientation for yeah. most of the, the colonial period, you know, right up yes. until almost the end of the Raj. Uh, your first book w was called... Anglo-Indians and Minority Politics in South Asia. Subtitle, yes. Race, Boundary Making and Communal Nationalism, which is a, a mouthful. And that was a yeah. very serious professorial book, which um, is only really stocked by university libraries. So that was never going to achieve the broader audience that I want, yeah. wanted to tell this story to. But that was yes. a very necessary step in an academic career yeah. uh, to, to, have, sure. to have a book like that. And yeah. in that book, I looked at a lot of constitutional minutiae um, to do mm. with the legislatures and the, and the constitution right. and the reasons for the granting of constitutional measures for the Anglo-Indian community, which was quite exceptional, in, in fact. But in the new book, I'm looking more at the human side of that, individual stories, yes. personalities, yes. major figures of British, Indian and Anglo-Indian politics, yeah. the interaction of Anglo-Indian leaders with Churchill, Clement Attlee, senior British political figures and right. the, the Indian leaders, uh, Gandhi, Ambedkar, Nehru and Sardar Patel. So with, with them history is written and is well documented but you're saying you juxtapose that with um, a human story a human element of it H how did you achieve that how well by that? by looking at the late colonial raj period through the prism through the perspective of this mixed race group that were okay. in the middle between the colonizer and the colonized between 
the rulers and the ruled. Yeah. That gives you a completely new way of seeing all of these issues. Right. And I think, for me, this group has a story that matters in, in, yes. a, in and of itself. Absolutely, yeah. But to raise its profile to demonstrate how yeah. interconnected it was with the highest levels of British and Indian politics at the time yeah. helps to prove that case to a wider audience. Okay. Yeah. This was a book that was always planned to target three markets, which is yeah. difficult. Yeah. So it was always planned that there was going to be a British edition, a North American yeah. edition, and an Indian edition. Interests are, are quite mm. different. You know, it, yeah. in, in India, the, the yeah. discussions of Ambedkar and Sardar Patel yeah. will be of great interest. Yeah. Those figures may be less well known by the general public in the West. Yeah. In America, the links with US history, there are some. Yeah. The activities of Cedric Dover in the United States and mentioning of African-American figures like Du Bois right. will probably be of greater interest. And okay. in, in Britain, yeah. I, I expect that the high drama of Churchill yeah. and Attlee and decolonization will have a greater focus. Yes. The book provides an overview of the origins of yeah. this mixed community yeah. through the 18th and 19th centuries especially. But the main emphasis is on yeah. the late colonial period from about 1900 to Indian independence in 1947 and the aftermath up until about 1950. There's some mention of the, mm. uh, the Indo-Pakistan conflicts that continued okay. right. after that period, but that, that's the core chronologically yeah. of the book. Okay. A large amount of the documentation of the Raj was brought back to, to Britain and archived yep. very carefully there. Okay. When I w worked on materials from the National Archive of India and the Anglo-Indian Association own archives, I found a lot of material that was not in Britain, yep. uh, but some of the material in India had been damaged by time and the right. climate. I've a lot of admiration and, and fondness for these yeah. historical figures who I've been working with yes, in yes. a sense for, for so long. You know, the, yeah. the, the other writers and other figures that you're writing about biographically, you come yeah. to know them and you're trying to be objective, but you do yeah. become fond of them, including all of their contradictions, you know, their more negative tendencies, their eccentricities. Yeah. As a whole package, you, you have a certain fondness for them. And, yeah. and I, I certainly have an ad, a great admiration for Sir Henry Gidney, the Anglo-Indian yeah. leader through most of the late colonial period, and then Frank Antony, who took over from him and had this incredibly difficult task right. of trying to reorientate the Anglo-Indians from this pro-British empire-supporting identity yeah. towards a embrace of Indian nationality, towards accepting that yeah. they were going to be citizens of India and that they had to feel a love for India in order that India would yeah. reciprocate and feel an inclusive love towards the Anglo-Indian community. So Frank Antony's narrative, his story, is really the story of the Anglo-Indians who stayed in India, who had yeah. to reshape their identity in order to Indianize themselves. 
So yes, he created yes. this, what I call communal nationalism, where he would put the Anglo-Indian identity as a nested identity into an Indian national identity. So he would right. say Indian by nationality, Anglo-Indian by community. Right. And within feeling that he was Indian, he said, I want to preserve my heritage, which includes speaking the English language, Western yep. dress. When he attended Nehru's Tryst with Destiny, amazing speech, um, at the moment of independence, the whole room was full of khadi wearing um, <laughs> white homespun cloth that the Indian yeah. nationalists all symbolically wore following Gandhi's example and Gandhi caps. But he was wearing, you know, full Western dress suit rig, yeah. you know, so he must have stood out. In Not my, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> he felt that he could preserve Anglo-Indians mm. hybrid but very westernized culture and their English language. Yes. And predominantly Anglo-Indians are Christian and, and within that they are mainly Catholic like my father's family. So he, he felt he could preserve all of that yeah. while embracing the group's Indian birthright, as he yes. put it. Yeah. One aspect of this is that that is very important and that is a core part of this yes, story. Yeah. But it is not the story of the parts of the diaspora that my family experienced, that the, the Anglo-Indians right. like my grandmother who went to Britain and felt that they were going home to Britain, even though it was is a country yeah. that they had not been born in, that they were not that familiar with. They, yes. they identified Britain as their home. And so despite the difficulties that so many immigrant yeah. communities face in, in integrating, in, in discrimination that existed in, in, the, in the 50s yeah. and 60s and 70s, to them that was a validation of their pro-British identity. So they were yeah. the unreconstructed Anglo-Indians of the Raj. And yeah. that is a big part of the story, too. And of course, that is not okay. Antony's story. Antony's story is the story of Britain's betrayal in India, which is the title of his book. Right. Okay. And that was a, a story that was really important for him to reshape Anglo-Indian identity as it continued to evolve in India. Yeah. But Anglo-Indian identity in, in Britain owes a lot to the preceding history of Anglo-India yeah. uh, during the Raj period. Okay. All right. Now, you mentioned these Anglo-India groups that you meet annually. Um, just roughly... Every three years. Every three years, okay. And these are people that are spread across the globe. Yes, there now. are There are smaller uh, Anglo-Indian communities in New Zealand and in, yeah. in Canada. And yeah. there are even a few in the United States. So it's, it's yeah. basically in India and in Pakistan, you know what was the Raj. Yeah. That's the, the original homeland of the Anglo-Indians, really. And the Anglosphere, all the English-speaking countries, that yeah. is where Anglo-Indians felt most comfortable migrating to. Yeah. And there were waves of emigration, first to Britain, then to Australia, and smaller cohorts to yeah. New Zealand and Canada. So a lot of these reunions have ended up being recently in India or in Australia, okay. although some of the early reunions were also in um, in these other countries, including yes. Britain and, and Canada. Yeah. Okay. What's what's the sort of scale of this group? I mean, how 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 so that, large? 
That is a difficult question. Yeah. Because after independence, they ceased to be counted in the Indian census. And therefore, we don't have a clear picture of the yeah. number of Anglo-Indians as opposed to the number of Christians in India. Right. Recently, the members of the Indian government suggested that there was a very small number of Anglo-Indians because of this lack of data. Yeah. It said that there were, you know, a handful, like less than 20. And the president <laughs> of the All India Anglo-Indian Association, Barry O'Brien, a good friend of mine, who's, who's also written a book recently on the community, he said, well, actually, there are more Anglo-Indians in my own family than that. <laughs> yeah, well, I would, have, I would have thought 20 is just a ridiculous number. So at the time of independence, 1947, um, it's estimated that there was 200,000 to 250,000 yeah. Anglo-Indians. And a sizable yes. proportion of those migrated to Britain. But it tended to be the better educated or the, the people yeah. with, with jobs and skills that were more easily yeah, transferable. transferable. yeah. Yeah. Or Anglo-Indians, especially women who had married um, yeah. British men, particularly soldiers, who then, yeah. and, and occasionally American or Canadian servicemen, and then migrated with them. Yeah. And I also think, unavoidably, that the issue of colour, as, yes. as well as race, played a role in emigration. And that yeah. particularly applies to Australia, because there was a white Australia policy. Yeah. Um, so an early mm. batch of Anglo-Indians arrived before the Australians understood that Anglo-Indians came in yeah. all colours, <laughs> the whole spectrum. And within individual yeah. Anglo-Indian families, including, yeah. you know, between my father, my late aunt and my uncle, mm. you get the sort of kaleidoscope of, of colour. Yes. You know, my my yes. father has brown skin. Yeah. My aunt looked more sort of Mediterranean. Right. And my uncle looked more white. So okay. and that's yes. that's typical, um, okay. and that's something that yeah. that you have to I have to explain whenever I give a book talk. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So I yeah. think that uh, that there was discrimination mm. to be faced for Anglo Indians arriving in in Britain. So I think color will have played a role in that, but yes. it didn't stop Anglo Indians with good educational qualifications or good professional yeah. qualifications, like my grandmother's elder brother was a medical doctor yeah. from the Indian Medical Service. After 1955, he emigrated um, and ended up as a GP in, in Britain. Yeah. So in the British case, and including in, in British India, race yeah. was never the same as it was in the United States history, which was very black and white. Yes, yeah. Class yeah. was always a really important factor. Yes, In, yeah. in British yeah. India and in Britain. Yeah. So yeah. the interesting thing is that the British in India tended to view Anglo-Indians as a lower class group, but they also viewed yeah. common British soldiers, they would call them BORs, British other ranks, as a lower class group. Right. And the the vicerine, Lady Curzon, er, early in the 20th century, who was actually American-born, um, married to an English aristocrat, Lord Curzon of Kettlestone, she said that, you know, English ordinary soldiers in India yeah. were less than dust. Right. Um, so the perspective of the British other ranks was beneath yeah. the notice of this very mm. class-gradated society yeah. of colonial Brits in India. Yes. 
And the amazing thing is that some people say influenced by the caste system, these gradations of rank, which were much more elaborate than the class system in Britain. Yes. And that that itself is fascinating. That is something which I've alluded to or I've talked about a little bit in the book, but something that needs to be expanded in one of my future books. Yeah, yeah. Um, because this yeah. book mainly is foregrounding the Anglo-Indians who were sort of beneath their their British yeah, class so caste count. hierarchy. Yeah. Ordinary British soldiers did mm. continue to marry Anglo-Indians, but that's because both yeah. groups were looked down upon by the, the colonial yeah. Brits and the, the Sahibs and the Mem yeah. Sahibs. And so the British mm. in India would be happier to mix with Indian Maharajas, you know, full-blooded Indians of higher caste status or with somebody like Nehru who was educated at Harrow and Cambridge than they would with an Anglo-Indian railwayman. So this was a class issue as well as a race and colour issue. Mm. Yeah, when you meet with these Anglo-Indian groups, uh, is there any desire to keep this thing going to a certain extent? In India, certainly. But in the diaspora, there are people of my father's generation who believe that the days are numbered for the preservation of this culture. And of course, the Anglo-Indian culture as it survived and continued in the diaspora is slightly different from the Anglo-Indian culture as it has continued to evolve in India, which is now much more at ease and integrated with the rest of Indian society. Okay, yeah. So these identities and these cultural experiences are diverging. Yeah. But periodically everyone reconnects and the sense of, yeah. of of having roots in India seems to be very powerful even yeah, for the okay. younger generations of children and, and grandchildren of Anglo-Indians in, in the West and in Australia and New Zealand. Yeah. So the, the disproportionate um, impact of some Anglo-Indians yeah. on the world stage is another aspect of this book. So on the cover ah, of the book okay. is Merle Oberon, okay. who was born Estelle O'Brien, okay, and uh, born in Bombay, and sh- she hid her background as an Anglo-Indian in order to succeed first at London Films and then in Hollywood. Okay, because until the 1960s, there were anti-miscegenation laws in the U.S. that, yeah. in many states, that prevented people of different races marrying. So, under the Hollywood's Hayes Code, you couldn't have white and non-white actors mm. co-starring in roman- romantic films where they yeah. would kiss, for yes, example. Yes, yes. So recently, Anna Mae Wong, who I also mention in the book, yeah. has been recognized in the US by being put on their coins. And she's the first Asian American to be thus recognized, which is very topical that that has yeah. happened just as I compared her with Merle Oberon. Her career was limited by the fact that she was obviously Asian, yeah, yeah. and so therefore she could not have romantic roles. She was typecast yes. as a, a villain or a femme fatale, but, yeah. but never allowed any roles where she would kiss yeah. a white co-star. Whereas Merle Oberon, even though it yeah. was pretty obvious that she was mixed to yeah. you know, even the slightly discerning <laughs> eye, you know, and, she, and she had slightly um, Asian eyes herself, yeah. she connived in the fiction mm. put about by her publicists at London Films that she had been born in Tasmania in Australia right. to where also the birthplace of Errol Flynn to British parents 
who were traveling. Right, right. And therefore, she was able to co-star and have romantic roles alongside yeah. Douglas Fairbanks, Solange Olivier, Leslie yeah. Howard. And yeah. that was all acceptable because everyone just agreed not to notice that <laughs> she wasn't really yeah. white. Yeah. Therefore, she became the first woman of Asian origins to be nominated yep. for an Academy Award. Right. And the first woman to actually win the award was Vivian Lee. Vivian Lee was also mixed. Okay. Her mother was from an Armenian Catholic family. Right. Their surname was Yakji. And her father, who was British, was forced to resign from the Bengal Club and the Saturday Club for right. having married her mother because she was socially unacceptable. And Crazy. their family maintains mm. that her grandmother was Irish, but she came from the kind of orphanage background in the hill stations where a Catholic child claiming to be Irish, even if they were of fa fair skin, might yeah. well be an Anglo-Indian also. Right. So you're here on December the 10th, Saturday, December the 10th, to do a talk at Vibe. W what sort of things are you going to cover on that day? Well, I'm certainly going to revisit the Hollywood angle. And there's yeah. the very interesting story of Boris Karloff, who was born William Henry Pratt uh, in the UK to two Anglo-Indian parents and his career. That's fascinating. There are a lot of famous singers who are of Anglo-Indian origins. They're not all of them acknowledge it. That's something that we might get into. And I think I'll build on the Hong Kong connections and comparisons with what, what we call the Eurasian community in Hong Kong, including famous individuals like Sir Robert Hotong, the participation of Eurasians in Hong Kong and Singapore and Anglo-Indians and Anglo-Burmans in India and Burma during the Second World War is a really fascinating story that we'll look at during the talk. Your Facebook site is, uh, can be found under Uther CS and similarly your Twitter site also named Uther CS. Yes, and there's also a Facebook page for the book, which is facebook.com slash Anglo-Indian-History with no hyphen. It just remains for me to say, Utha, thank you very much for coming. Thank you very much for having me, and I'm really looking forward to our event at Vibe. You can listen to all our Vibrations podcasts, published on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Amazon Music, TuneIn and Alexa, and a whole host of others. Or you can watch on our YouTube channel under Live at Vibe HK, or follow the links from my website, vibehk.com. The opening and closing music comes from Celestial and is called Green Island Dub and is on the retrospect vinyl album On Sale at Vibe. Finally, a reminder that Vibe is open seven days a week, every day of the year, from 12 noon until approximately 6.30pm. Well, that's it for another week. Thanks for listening to the 43rd Vibe Book and Music Shop podcast called Vibrations. I'm Gary Brightman. You get my vibe? Can you imagine what this old island must have looked like to those Dutch sailors when they first saw it? Fresh green. Like a dream of a new world. They must have held their breath. Afraid it would disappear before they could touch it.